Hey, if you're joining us for the first time, we're so glad you're here. I know it's sometimes hard to step out and come to a new place. Thank you for doing that. And if you're joining us online, we appreciate you there being um, joining us also. So the summer between my sophomore and junior year, I worked in the panhandle of Texas. I was working in a gas plant. I had an apartment that was right by a field. And that's important because we had mice. And those little fellas were brazen. They would go scooting across the kitchen, and I didn't know what to do. I wasn't quick enough, kind of with Nate, like Nate, I wasn't quick enough to catch them. But I thought, you know what? These little mouses, they have no control over their desire for food. So back in the day, I went to the hardware store, always available were those spring-loaded traps. And all I had to do was set like a gumdrop on it and put it in there. And 30 minutes later, I bang, and they're dead. And what I counted on was these mice, though they're quicker than me, they can't control their desire for food. I got about five of those suckers, and I think the word got out, and they stopped coming into our apartment. (laughs) They couldn't bring their desires for food under control. It's instinct. You know, we can be plagued by the same thing. We have God-given desires, but we have a choice. God has given his spirit and has given us the option to submit our desires to him. Lest we end up like the mice, I think that's a pretty good idea. And I want to talk about that today. So if you've got a Bible, if you would open it to 2 Samuel chapter 10 and 11, Nate got that wrong. He said chapter 10 because he was so concerned about making his joke, he didn't get 2 Samuel chapters 10 and 11. We're going to go through these two chapters and we're going to wrestle with this question, why should we bring our desires under God's control. We have a choice. We're going to bring those under. Why do we want to do that? If you haven't been with us, this is what's been going on. We've been in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Israel is transitioning from a loose federation to a monarchy. And in that, they want security. And they thought, what we need is we need a king. And God said, no, you really don't need a king. Yeah, we do. And finally, God said, okay, so you can learn what you need is ultimately me. I'm going to give you your king. And the first guy's king's name was Saul. And when he got anointed, he missed the memo that Saul, you do not have absolute authority here. Um, your kingship exists under my authority, and Saul did his own thing, and God said, we're moving on. And you know, a guy named David, the same David that dropped Goliath with a stone, that one, he said he's going to be the new king. And Saul was threatened by David's rising popularity, and so he chased him around somewhere between 10 and 13 years. In that, David learned faith. Finally, um, Saul goes out into battle, and he dies, and the road is now supposedly clear. For David to assume the throne, but first they've got to have a civil war, and then they've got some disagreements. And finally, David becomes king. He goes into Jerusalem. He establishes the nation, and, and, and he expands the borders so they're no longer being invaded. So the first time, for the first time in their history, they're living in their land in peace. But protecting that peace is an ongoing process. And so as we open in 2 Samuel 10... The king of the Ammonites dies, and in verses 1 and 2, David sends a delegation just to express sympathy. But in verses 2 and 3, the leaders think they are spies, this delegation spies. So they, in verses 4 and 5, they cut off half their beards, and they cut off their robes at the waist, basically humiliate the guys and send them back. David says that, and he says, why don't you guys go live over here until your beards grow back? The rest of you strap it on. We're going to take these guys on. So that's the call to war, verses 6 through 8. The Ammonites and others gather their allies, and they go to fight. Uh, Verses 9 through 11, David stays in the city, and Joab goes out and leads the men of Israel. 
In verse 12 of chapter 10, he, he addresses the soldiers this way. He says, be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. We have a, we have a responsibility to be strong. But then he says, the Lord has a part. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. We're, we're, we're going to be working to protect our peace and our land, but we need the Lord to come through. Uh, verses 13 and 14 um, tell us the battle goes Israel's way. Verses 15 through 16, these enemies regroup. This time and they call David out to lead the battle. Verse 17 says, Now when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen and struck down Shobak and the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the king's servants of Hadezar saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. God's favor is on David's life in Israel. And the kingdom is being expanded, the borders are expanded so that the people can live in peace. David is living God's favor. But again, the, the, maintaining the peace is an ongoing um, process. So verse, chapter 11, verse 1, that happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. Basically, the roads are dry, and you don't need the men so much in agricultural work. Spring is when you do battle. That David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel then they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. A lot of people make a bigger deal that David stayed in Jerusalem. I don't, I don't think it's such a big thing. Sometimes he went out, sometimes he didn't. But it's what happened when he stays in Jerusalem that is concerned. Verse 2. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sees, and he sends for her, verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, we don't know who, this about this woman. This is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Hey, 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 David, just, just, just remember... This is somebody's daughter, and this is somebody's wife. But when you're the king, and you've been in control, you've basically been taking what you want for wives, that goes straight through. You've seen why, and David's been collecting wives and wives and wives, and just keeps adding them. What's one more? Verse 4. David sent messengers. Notice how many times in these next few verses we're going to see the word sent or send. David's the king. He can send and he can send and he can, and it's done. He's all powerful and he's exercising that authority. David sent messengers and took her and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived. Uh-oh. David's got a problem. She's a married woman. This time she sends. She sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. Whoops. David's got a problem. 
And this problem is going to continue to grow. When Saul failed, the prophet Samuel said, came to him and said, you're done. God has chosen for himself a man after his own heart. That's David. How can a man after God's own heart be doing what David's doing and is about to do? That's just at least one of his desires. It's gotten out of control. And it's controlled him. Let's go back. When, when Israel wanted a king, and they were going back and forth, Samuel was the prophet, and this is a bad idea. They don't care. We want, we want a king. That's a bad idea. This is one of the things Samuel said to the people, why a king's a bad idea. It's 1 Samuel 8, verses 11 13. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take, and that's the operative word, he will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing, and some to reap his harvest, to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. Verse 13, he will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. And I'm not going to go on in the passage, but the the message was the king is going to take your sons and your daughters, he's going to take your produce, and he's going to take, and he's going to take, and he's going to take, and he's going to take. Why? Because he's the king. He can do that. Maybe having a king isn't such a good idea, but to be oh, no, no, we want a king. Okay, you can have your king. Now, if you've been with us through this series in First and Second Samuel, as David has gone on and his rulership and kingship has been established, he's been taking wives. And taking wives. And all along, I've been referring to Deuteronomy 17, 17. This is what he says about the king. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now, we've seen David be good with money. When he takes spoil, he brings it into the, the uh, temple and makes it the Lord's treasury. But the whole wives thing, he hasn't been doing very well on. In fact, he's been flat disobeying. He's been adding wives and adding wives. You think, well, I, I guess you can get away with it. I guess it never catches up with you. Nope. Nope. You and I flaunt the word of God long enough. We turn our nose at it. We think we'll do our own thing. It will find us out. If you are a man or woman right now, in any area of life disobeying God, I would beg you right now. Wow, Andy, I've been pulling Okay. But you don't want to push. You don't want to presume upon the grace of God. Because David has, and he's in trouble, and he's going to get a whole lot more desperate. Verse 6, then David sent, there's our word again, you're the king, sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David three times. It goes three different levels. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people in the state of the war. I think David's feigning interest in the war, because his real interest is in verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. It's a euphemism for sleep with your wife. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent after him. All right, problem solved, right? This is before DNA testing. So you sleep with your wife, and and no one's going to really put the time together. We're good. Problem solved. However, The trouble is, verse 9 starts with the word, but. That always means there's a change. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Uh Uh-oh. All right, this this isn't working so well for David. Now, when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? 
Why do you not go down to your house? Listen to the honor of this man. Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? That's a rhetorical question. Say, no, I won't. If the people with whom I'm serving aren't partaking in this, I ain't either. Because I have a kindred and a bond with those other soldiers. By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. I would argue Uriah is a whole lot more honorable than David. Remember when we were in Sierra Vista, there was a guy in our church who was a police officer. He drove a night car, and I, that never make you nervous. He said, no, Andy, before I, this, I was infantry. And I said, was that scary? He said, absolutely not. I loved being in the infantry because it was a bond. We've got each other's back, and that's the mission. And, and, and I, he said, if I hadn't had kids, I'd be there now but I was deploying so much. But, but that's what I sense from Uriah. I, I've got a, a, a oneness with these guys, so no, I'm not going to do it. So David's problem continues to grow. So what's he going to do? Then David said to Uriah, stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but did not go down to his house. So David's plan B, I'm going to get the guy drunk. How's that for godly leadership? How's that for a man after God's own heart? What happened? He lost control of his desire, and eventually it's getting him into trouble, and he's doing all kind of crazy here. He's desperate. That doesn't work either. So what's next, David? Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and, here's our word again, sent it by the hand of Uriah. So Uriah is carrying what will be his own death orders. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front of the line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. I mean, he's planning his murder. That's what he's doing. My goodness, David, you've fallen a long way. This is what happens when our desires don't come under God's control. So, verse 15, it was as Joab kept as it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab. Some of his people among David's servant fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. So Joab follows through on the setup. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says, Why did you go so near to the city? To fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaseth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why do you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. He's given the messenger an event from Israel's past. If you're questioning my tactics, hey, it's happened before. But what he really wants David to know is that Uriah is dead. So the messenger takes the message, embellishes it a little bit. So the message departed, the messenger departed and reported to David all that Job had sent to him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. 
So the salient point gets communicated. Uriah's dead. I don't know how much the messenger knows what's going on here, but, but he got the idea. We need to communicate that Uriah is dead. Listen to David's callous response in verse 25. Then David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it. And so encourage him. Hey, 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 people die in battle all the time. Don't let this bother you. This is the man after God's own heart. His desires got away from him. Man, it's taken him to a dark place. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the timing mourning was over, David sent, there's our word again, and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. Go ahead and leave that verse up there. David pulled it off. He's been able to send and do this and that, and, you know, bringing the guy in didn't work, getting him drunk didn't work. Okay, then we'll set up his murder, and we covered that, and we're good. And this king, you can do that, and, and, and it's good. He's married her, and, and no one's going to think any different except the end of verse 27. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. He pulled it off, but God saw For the sake of time, I'm not going to preach chapter 12 today. We just don't have it. So a little bit of a spoiler alert. The prophet Nathan's going to come up, and he's going to tell David a little parable, and he's going to say, uh, you're the one that took advantage of an innocent man. And God will forgive you, but the sword is never going to depart from your house. In the chapters to come, David's house will first be affected by rape between a half-brother and a half-sister followed by murder, followed by a cherished son fleeing. When that son comes back and he doesn't get David's attention, he sets a field on fire of Joab. And then that son leads a coup and drives David out of Jerusalem. And David's forced to either you, you kill him or, 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 or you die, and, and that son dies. David will be forgiven. David will continue as king. But there are consequences to you and me and David not bringing our desires under God's control. And I think if David could make a trade, he'd dial this one back. Once they're out, they're out. See, we're asking this question, why? Man, I want to do what I want to do. I want to be me. I want to express myself. Why should we bring our desires under God's control? Here's the deal. When we don't bring our desires under God's control... We ruin our life and the lives of our loved ones. You don't, I don't bring our desires under God's control. I ruin my life and the lives of people I love. David, the man after God's own heart. What drove him? We're, we're, we're led to speculate, but I, I say there's some kind of ego, pleasure, kick that he just thought he'd do his own thing. Look, God is a God of pleasure. He loves pleasure. He created sex. He created it, though, for a man and a woman in marriage. In that relationship, you bond with the person. You get together and you, and you date and you this and you pull apart. You, you callous your heart. Well, Andy, you know, we're dating and you know, we're going to get married anyway, so we just, uh, 
We just got to go ahead and get involved. I do some marriage counseling, and, and I remember this couple. I mean, they had huge, huge value differences. I mean, really different. And finally, I said to the guy, did you guys ever talk about this when you were dating? No. Were you physically involved? Yeah. See, the power of that experience made them look past that difference in values. And for six months to a year, it was good. But you can't cover that up forever. Then here it comes, three or four years into marriage and a couple kids, and man, we're really different. We should have talked about it. Yeah, you should have. What now? That's why God says the order's important. Get that stuff out on the table. Let's talk about it before we get into it. Let's see, are we headed the same way? Do we have the same values? God's a good God, and he wants the best for your marriage and my marriage. But that means purity before marriage. So we can be honest and assess, is this relationship right, and are we headed the same way? If you're a person right now dabbling in pornography, I wish you'd listen to me. That is another way of defying God's plan for marriage because you are looking at something on a screen or on a phone and imagining. And you're thinking, ah, oh, it's, no, it's no big deal. I can't tell you how many conversations I have as a pastor mostly with men, but not exclusively. Yeah, I just started looking, and, 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 and Andy, I was just kind of this, and, and then one thing grew to another, and these images are still there. And it's affecting my marital intimacy because I've got these things, and I'm... If you're dabbling in pornography, I beg you to stop, and that may be a process. Okay, if you're a parent of young children, would you listen to me, Please. When I was, our kids were in the third grade, I started having the talk. I've got two sons. Fellas, when they come out with this on the phone, they say, look here, and whoa, ew, don't do it. Because those images will stay in your mind. It'll seem, oh, this is cool. I'm thumbing my nose at authority, and it's everywhere. You can, you can see it. But it's going to wreck the most significant relationship you will have. So don't go down that road. Choose not to go there, to look away, because it may seem innocent, but it's not. So four or five years ago, I was with our youngest son back there, and I said, Drew, I started in the third grade with this talk. Was I on time? Was I early? Or was I late? You know what he said to me? Dad, you were two years what? I was two years late. You're kidding me. You're kidding me. No, 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 Dad, I'm not kidding. If you're not having the talk with your kids, somebody will. Somebody will set expectations. Then they won't tell them how much it will wreck their marriage down the road. Would you take the initiative and talk with your kids about it? Okay, sex is not the only place our desires can control us. Money's another issue. We can do all kind of crazy for money, can't we? Work 80 hours a week, steal on the side. A while ago, uh, Years ago, a friend of mine said, Andy, it's a funny thing. The more money you get, the, the more money gets you. So when I came out of college, I worked with Campus Crusade. My, my first 10 years on my W-2, which is, tells your annual earnings, I was always under $10,000. We got married after that. We went to seminary. And when we went overseas, we had a laptop computer, and we bought that, and it took our checking account down to 
our, our salary as a married couple was $1,800 a month. We were in Costa Rica and Chile. Um, and, and we needed to think about money because we needed to have enough donors to get the support. We needed to have a certain balance in our account. But beyond that, I, I didn't think about money. We had enough to go, and I, I didn't think about it. Well, then we came back, and eventually I got a pastor here in Lincoln Berean, and they paid a better salary. And then our kids grew up, and my wife went back to school when our youngest was in the first grade, and she recertified as a teacher and got a master's. And then, and then our parents died, and we got both estates. Now we got all kind of money, comparatively. When do you think I've thought more about money? In in those early years or now? Well, a lot more now. I mean, are we getting a good rate on the CD? Are we, are we, whatever? The more money you get, the more money gets you. And if we don't bring our desires for money, just like under the control of God, they'll wreck us. I'll tell you the thing about popularity. What will you do to be popular? What kind of a thing will you do on Friday night? What kind of a conviction will you compromise to be popular? That desire for significance needs to come to Jesus. That desire for intimacy, that desire for security needs to come to Jesus first. And let him regulate and his word determine what we do. See, David was a man after God's own heart. And God puts his story in there to warn me and to warn you. If he can fail, so can you, and so can I. So what do you say? Psalm 1611 says this. It says, you will make known to me the path of life. And this is the psalmist writing to God. The path of life is in God, okay? In your presence is fullness of joy, not in an experience. In God, and I would say ultimately in Jesus. Okay, catch this now, because David was seeking pleasure. In your right hand... There are pleasures forever. Not a fleeting pleasure. Pleasures forever. Jesus, I believe, is the fulfillment of that. He wants to be the one who meets your deepest needs and my deepest needs. And our desires need to come under his control. When he says this stops and this is the limit and this is what and this. Okay. Because you're a good God making known to us the path of life, giving us fullness of joy and promising pleasures forever. That we draw near to Jesus. That he would be the fulfillment of our deepest desires and wants. Four or five years ago, a, a scandal broke about some parents who were involved in basically bribery and money laundering to get their kids into prestigious schools. So they'd ship the money here, and then that person would ship it to, for example, the tennis coach at Harvard, and they would say, I'll recruit your Sally as a tennis player at Harvard, though Sally had never played tennis at all. So this thing broke in 2019, and all these wealthy folk got busted for bribery and money laundering. Maybe the biggest name was a lady named Lori Laughlin. She's a big star in Hollywood. She was the star of the show um, Full House. I guess that show has been picked up on one of these, Paramount or Amazon, I don't know, one of them. And they're doing Fuller House. She's back in it. Well, she was convicted. And she got two months in jail and had to pay $150,000 and to do a bunch of community service. Her husband got five months in jail, and had to pay $250,000, and had to do a whole bunch of community service. 
What I want you to hear, though, is what Judge Nathaniel Garton said to this couple when he was sentencing. Here's what he says. Here you are. Maybe this is to Lori Laughlin. He's saying this. An admired, successful, professional actor with a long-lasting marriage, two apparently healthy, resilient children, more money than you could possibly need, a beautiful home in sunny Southern California, dash a fairy tale life. Yet, with all this, you stand before me a convicted felon. Felon. And for what? Here we go. There's where I want us to land. For the inexplicable desire to grasp even more. That's what happens when your desires and my desires don't come under God's control. We never get enough. We always want more. And so we'll give 500000 to this guy, and you laundered here, and you tell the rowing coach. That's what her, her kids were recruiting, recruited for the rowing coach, rowing team at USC, but they had never done one bit of rowing in their whole life. Really? But when you get whatever you want, however you want, you just think you can pull it off. And you end up a convicted felon. You don't have to go that way. I don't have to go that way. Jesus says, in me is fullness of life. In me is joy. In me are pleasures that are not fleeting, but last forever. Would you trust me by bringing your desires under my control? Why do we want to do that? When we don't bring our desires under God's control, we ruin our life, and we ruin the lives of our loved ones. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word. And it's not all good. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, pretty rough examples. And we've seen one this morning. The man after God's own heart lost control. And now he's going to reap the consequences. Lord, that we wouldn't have to go that way. That we wouldn't have to make David's mistakes. That our desires would be placed under you and your control. Lord, that we see you as the one who knows the path of life. You is the one who gives joy, and you are the one, yes, who gives pleasures that last forever. Lord, we take hold of that, Jesus, and it's his name I pray. Amen.